As I think back on the years that God has been kind enough to let me live, I have to confess and acknowledge that my life has been one of astonishing blessedness and relative ease. My life experiences growing up in a Christian home with parents who loved me, who disciplined me well, but disciplined me in love, who supported me as I moved into adulthood, who cared for me and who loved my wife and who loved my children. The experiences I've had in churches, not always perfect, some hard experiences, but overall, I have lived a life of ease and comfort. And I wouldn't presume about your life, but I would say that compared to the vast majority of people who have lived throughout history, and compared to most people who have professed Jesus Christ through history, in most cases, our lives have been ones of comfort, ones of relative ease. We experience almost daily the benefits of the history of what many people call a Christian nation. And however you parse that out, we experience the benefits of freedom, the, the sense of liberal democracy in a little L and a little D sense. We, we experience those blessings and we are free to worship. We are free to follow Jesus as we see fit. You recognize that's not been the case for people throughout history. There have been times of great genocide. There have been times of great oppression. There have been times of great persecution. I was thinking often this week about the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. If you don't know that story or if you haven't read it in years, I encourage you to do that this week, to go back to uh, somewhere around chapter 36 or 37 of Genesis and read through the end of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, who was a favored son. And so I'm going to guess that the first 12 years of his life, uh, they went pretty smoothly. And then you remember what happens. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's thrown in a pit. Instead of killing him, they decide to sell him into slavery, an act of mercy, supposedly. He's taken down to Egypt. He's sold into slavery in the household of a man named Potiphar, who is a high official. He is faithful in that role, and he rises to the level of the household manager. But then you know the story. He is seduced by Potiphar's wife. He refuses the seduction, and then he's falsely accused of abuse and rape, and he ends up in prison and as best as we can figure the chronology, he's a slave, a captive, or a prisoner for 12 or more years of his life. So the first 12 years were years of great blessing and ease. But the second 12, 13 years were years of heartache and bondage and false accusation, dark, dark circumstances. And yet he is faithful. It's an anachronism to say it this way, but allow me to use shorthand this morning. He followed Jesus even though times were tough. He was faithful to the God of Israel. That kind of faithfulness, that kind of obedience, that kind of, we would call it today, that kind of gospel living, it's an ever more powerful demonstration of the gospel's truth and the gospel's power and the glory of the God of the gospel who saves. Now, most of you know we're working our way through the book of Titus. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Titus chapter 2. 
Titus is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Titus, whom he had left on Crete, and he had left him there with very specific instructions. You say, well, what are those instructions? We have them in our Bible, the book of Titus. And the purpose of the instructions are early in chapter 1, you remember, to set in order the things that remain. These were young, immature churches. They needed a guiding hand in order to live faithfully in a society that was a dark society. And so the question that shows up on Crete was, does the gospel work? Is it real? By the way, it's the same question that people would ask in California today. Does the gospel work? Is it real? And one of the things we find here in Titus is, especially in chapter 2, Dr. Busnitz highlighted it last week as he preached for us, Look with me, for example, in chapter 2, look in verse 5. The, the point is, is that the behavior is expected, the behavior of believers is expected to reinforce doctrine or teaching. In other words, the way we live is to reinforce what we say we believe. And so notice in verse 5, at the end of the verse, after talking about the responsibility of wives, young wives, it says, they should live this way that the word of God may not be reviled. Look down in verse 8 of the same chapter, our text from last week, the, the responsibility that in all things there should be faithfulness at the end of verse, of the verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Do you see the theme? And then you'll see it in our text this morning at the end of verse 10 where it says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So the issue is, it's one thing to talk, it's another thing to walk. And our walk should mirror and reflect our talk. An early Christian writer said this, the heathen do not judge the Christian's doctrines from the doctrine, but from his actions in life. And that's still true today. A humorous example of this is a pastor friend I have in Texas who had a friend who was advocating that this pastor take up skydiving. The only problem is, is that he had a broken leg from jumping out of an airplane. You see, that, that's not a great advertisement for the usefulness of skydiving. I think there's an issue of sanity that goes along with that as well. But nevertheless, it's an example of there should be some evidence of what we advocate and what we believe. And we have an example of that in our text. So look at, with me. At Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, a brief text this morning. In verse 9, Titus 2, verse 9, as, as I read, I remind you, this is God's word for us today. Bond servants, in Greek language, it's literally the word slaves, doulos, slaves. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For all people. Now, <clears throat> look in chapter 2 with me for just a moment. Go back to verse 1 and notice. There's what's called in Bible study an inclusio. Uh, the shorthand term for that would be there are bookends here. And the bookends are the idea of sound or faithful doctrine. So look in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then you have the instructions we looked at last week to 
older women and older men and younger women and younger men. And then you come down to the end of verse 10 where you have another occurrence of this idea of the doctrine of God our Savior. So this is all a unit. How we all live should represent the doctrine of God. Also notice that in verse 11, the point of all of this is that the gospel works for all kinds of people. In verse 11, where it says that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, this is not a text that endorses universalism, that all people will end up being saved. It's that all kinds of people the gospel will do its work in. And we know that the New Testament teaches this. This was a shocking thing in the beginning of the church, because when you went to a church meeting, it was basically mixed worship. There were not only men and women there together, but there were Jews and Gentiles, and they were worshiping the same Jesus And also, there were slaves, and there were free men, and according to the New Testament, there were slaves and even the slaves' masters who were worshiping together, worshiping Jesus. And what Paul does to Titus is he highlights the fact that even though your circumstances might not be ideal, there is still a level of faithfulness to Jesus that we are called to. The gospel and the word are to even affect the behavior of slaves. Now we pause. Because that idea, these words, great on our 21st century, sophisticated, enlightened ears, don't they? So we begin this morning by acknowledging and unpacking what I call the enigma of the Bible and slavery, or Scripture and slavery. But before we dive in, let me just remind you, one sermon can't address every question or issue that you might have. In fact, one text can't address every single issue or question you might have. But I'm going to do my best this morning to unpack a difficult subject and to do it in a way that I hope by the time we're through, you will see how this word to believers two centuries ago still has application for you and me, even though we don't endorse slavery, we abhor slavery, and we will not experience slavery in our lifetime. The enigma of Scripture and slavery. Because the truth is, as some of our Bible commentaries will acknowledge, there is an awkward silence in the New Testament about slavery. But we need to begin by acknowledging this. And I'm just going to walk through some issues with you. I hope that you'll bear with me this morning, and then we'll return to the text. But we need to deal with this issue about slavery. And the first thing I would want to tell you is that awkwardness that we feel, the grating on our ears that we have when we hear the word slaves or to be submissive to their masters, the inherent pushback to all of that is a result of biblical Christianity. Cultures did not think through the fact that slavery was not appropriate, that slavery was not representative of the worth of every single individual until the cultures, generally speaking, were influenced by what you and I would call Christianity. The shorthand way this used to be said was Western civilization. Nevertheless, it's the case. And so the very people who argue, for example, you will argue, some will argue against the Bible because they will say, look, the Bible endorses slavery. The very opposition they have in their hearts and minds to slavery would not be there if it weren't for the influence of the Bible over 2,000 years. That's the first thing we need to say. But then we have to ask the question, 
Why doesn't the Bible say more about slavery? And especially, why didn't Jesus and the apostles do away with slavery? Well, the first thing I want to show you is what the Bible does say. And it is rather clear. For example, in the law, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 21, we read, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. The law was serious about slave trade. And it was a capital offense in Israel. In Deuteronomy 24, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now that's a repeated phrase in the law, but they're classified as evil to be purged away from the nation of Israel under the theocracy of Yahweh, the God of Israel. One of those evils was slavery. We jump over into what we call the New Testament and look in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We read these words, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And then Paul goes on to explain the categories he's talking about. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. And then look at this, enslavers. So the New Testament acknowledges the same as the Old Testament. The idea of a slave trade, the idea of selling people for profit as property, is condemned in Scripture. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. And then you have an interesting text in 1 Corinthians 7. And I wish I could take more time to unpack this text this morning. But in 1 Corinthians 7, we read these words. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Now, let me stop right there. The point of 1 Corinthians 7 is you should dwell in the existence where you find yourself because God is sovereign and He can work in those circumstances. That's the general argument, one of the arguments of 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 says, whatever your circumstance is, the implication is God's providence has brought you there, so find a way to be faithful in it. And so that's the main point. But it's as though Paul stops, and because of the nature of slavery, it's as though he gives an exception. And it's right there in the text. I'm pointing at the screen, but the point is it's in your Bibles, right? Because it says in that same text, were you called as a bondservant, by the way, it's the same word, slave, were you called as a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. You see, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, slavery was regulated without being condoned. Much like in the Old Testament, polygamy. And much like in the New Testament, divorce never was to be the ideal, often entered into in a godless way. And so they were regulated. But embedded in it all, the evils of slavery are assumed and they are revealed. That's the reason Joseph is a foundational story. Or it would be better for me to say, one of the reasons we can say that is because Joseph is a foundational story. And his story was the unfairness and the inequity of being sold into slavery. And then let's not forget the very people of God, Israel, were in cruel bondage for what? 400 years. And if you haven't read that in the Bible, you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? For 400 years, they were in cruel bondage. And that's the burden of the New Testament. But we come to the Roman Empire when Paul wrote Titus. 
And what we find is that slaves were foundational to the stability of the entire economy and society. About 200 years before Paul wrote these words, there had been a four-year uprising of slaves on the island of Sicily. And that response to that by the authorities was brutal, ruthless, and bloody. Rome had some sense, now catch this, Rome had some sense of a slave's personhood. There were rights that slaves held in Rome that quite different from the 18th and 19th century in America. There were rights that slaves possessed, but they were still property. Slaves were considered the material possessions of their masters instead of equal image bearers of God, as the Bible teaches. And the owners in Rome had near complete power over a slave. One commentator says this, In the Roman Empire, slaves worked as domestic servants, farm laborers, clerks, craftsmen, teachers, soldiers, and managers. Some were even doctors. And what we do know from Roman slavery is that it was a well-traveled path to citizenship. Unlike when we think of slavery in the terms of American chattel slavery that was race-based, unlike that, in Rome... Very many slaves had taken advantage of the opportunity to work and earn their freedom. And some scholars think, from evidence we have, that that took usually around seven years. And if you know your Old Testament, it is also true that in the Old Testament, one who sold himself into slavery would be released after how many years? Seven years. It's interesting parallel. Here's what we're saying this morning. In Bible times, slavery was not equal to American race-based chattel slavery, which was a deep and dark evil. And it is a shame upon Christianity that Christians use the Bible to justify, including a text like today's, to justify that evil. But we also have to recognize that while slavery in the Bible times was not equal to American race-based chattel slavery, it was also not mere indentured servants. It wasn't just an employment agreement. It was somewhere in between. And as it was, it was and still would be evil. We don't have to be ashamed of what the Bible says and pretend like slavery was some kind of noble institution. It wasn't. It's not. And so then the question still that we keep coming back to is, then why doesn't the New Testament do away with it? Why doesn't Jesus talk about an uprising? Why don't the apostles call the churches to have all of the slaves free and begin a movement of emancipation and abolition? Well, the great English pastor John Stott, who, by the way, is in no way a redneck conservative, he says this, And this is a long quote, so I've got it on the screen. I want you to follow along. He says, Why is it that neither Jesus nor his apostles called for the complete and immediate abolition of this horror? Probably the main reason is that slavery was deeply embedded in the structures of Greco-Roman society. It is believed that there were more than 50 million of them in the empire, including one-third of the inhabitants of Rome. In consequence, to dismantle slavery all at once would have brought about the collapse of society. Now note this next point. Any signs of a slave revolt were put down with ruthless brutality. And then Stott says, at the same time, Paul enunciated principles 
which undermined the very concept of slavery and led inexorably to its abolition. One other point before we move on about Scripture and slavery is we have to remind ourselves that Paul was willing, if not eager, to call himself a slave of Jesus. If you wonder about that, you go back and look, Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant, and in all of our Bibles, there's likely a margin mark, and if you look down, it says that's the word for slave. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the way, in the Old Testament, the key leaders that we have in the Old Testament called themselves slaves of Yahweh, slaves of God. Again, that is not condoning the institution of slavery itself, but it's leveraging a metaphor and grasp this. The reason that language is used is because this was a well-recognized life situation where one's will is no longer one's will. One's will is no longer one's own. And that is what happened in slavery. And in a fallen world, that's an evil. But when you respond to the holy, righteous, good, loving God, you yield your will over to Him. And so this is a metaphor which is leveraged about the glory of God who saves us. We are willingly His slaves because our will is no longer our own. And that brings me to the responsibility we have in the text. And the responsibility basically is very simple. It is submission, slaves and submission in verses 9 and 10. Look at it again. We need to spell it out. It says bond servants, and here the ESV is trying to be somewhat nuanced, but the word is the same word, slaves. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. I don't know if you ever listened to Alistair Begg, but he calls this back chat. I think that must be a Scottish term. I thought that was great. Not argumentative, not pilfering, which was petty theft, in other words, but showing all good faith. In other words, complete trustworthiness. Now, here's what Paul's doing. He's writing to Titus. He says, Titus, you've got to equip slaves to live out the gospel. And what that looks like is it looks like being aware that their sinful flesh is still their sinful flesh. Paul is basically playing off a stereotype of slaves, that they often would be argumentative. They often would be guilty of theft. And so this is a warning that has to do with the fact that even believing slaves were still struggling with the unfairness of their circumstance. Do you see how this would work? Well, it's not fair that I'm a slave, and so I'm just going to take a little bit here, and I'm going to argue here. And that's the rationality, the rationalization that some of us engage in even today in different circumstances. But also what Paul's doing is he's warning them that because they have new freedom in Christ, that's going to complicate their status with no freedom to their master. And there is a danger of there always being pushback. And so what Paul was saying, he was saying for the slaves that are in the churches in Crete, it's not the kind of brutal race-based slavery that we think of in America, but it was more than just indentured service. For those slaves, the tendency would be that they would take their newfound freedom in Christ and once again begin a social revolution. Paul says, that's not what the gospel's about. And so he warns slaves based on their own sinful flesh, but also based on their new identity as freedmen in Christ. One of the things you find, you find it here with masters and slaves. You find it also 
in some of the implications about marriage, you find that in general, the character integrity of the one in authority is not the issue. The issue is the system of authority and the willingness of the believer to yield to that authority. Now, this doesn't have to do with raw tyranny. This doesn't have to be, remember, the Bible tells us we must obey God rather than men. But when it's not that kind of situation, we find ourselves in a position of authority, we yield to authority. Some of you may not know this, but years ago, Christy coached soccer, varsity soccer up in the mountains. And at one particular game, there was a referee that had made a couple of calls, the offside calls, if you know about soccer. And I just felt like they were really illegitimate calls. And so I'm not only uh, uh, an interested citizen there watching the girls' soccer, but I'm the husband of the coach. And so I decided to go ask a question of this referee. And I've been, you might, might surprise, this might surprise you, a lot of people have been rude to me in my many years of life. I have never had anyone be more disrespectful or rude than that referee. It was after the game. I wasn't interrupting the game. He was packing up his stuff. I went and I was going to ask him a question to explain the reason and explain the call. I've never had anyone be more rude. So I decide I'm going to write a letter to CIS about this. And so I find out that he's not just a soccer referee. He's a CHP officer. And I tried to imagine, I wrote the letter, by the way, and I not only wrote the letter to CIS, but I wrote the letter to the CHP. And I said, I've never been treated more disrespectfully. Now, here's the point. That guy, pardon me if I can be colloquial this morning, the guy was just a jerk. It was clear he was just a jerk. There's no reason he couldn't give me a respectful answer, even a kind answer. But if I'm out speeding on Highway 58 headed down to Bakersfield, and he stopped me, that would give me no basis to ignore his authority. He would still be a CHP officer and would still have authority over me as a citizen and as a driver who more likely than not had broken the law. You see, the fact that we yield to authority doesn't legitimize the character of the people in authority. Some of us are struggling with this right now in our political system, aren't we? And we have to determine where where there's a tyrant and where there's genuine tyranny and where there is just authority that we feel like is mistaken and disqualified yet still holds authority. And that's what we find in this text. That's what we find in the command for wives to submit themselves to their husbands. It's what sometimes, hold on to your seats for a moment, hadn't planned to say this, it's what sometimes church members find in dealing with elders. You have to decide how you'll respond to authority and where that authority is drifted over into tyranny. Tyranny is not addressed in the text because the general principle is when you find yourselves in these difficult circumstances, the believer in Jesus Christ is willing to yield for the sake of the gospel. As one famous preacher said, overall, our general call as believers is in the most servile of circumstances be submissive. Now, I'm going to suggest that if you knew you were going to hear that this morning, you might have found an excuse to stay away on a Labor Day, right? But let me talk to you about application. Application. Most preachers and teachers typically make this turn right now. They say, slavery no longer is a factor for us. Slavery in the Bible was different from slavery today. 
But these principles apply to your employer. And they go back and they read verses 9 and 10, and they say, don't steal from your employer, don't argue back, be submissive to your employer. And okay, I guess perhaps, let me tell you some of the pastors that I respect the most, that's the way they handle this passage. You go and you read their sermons, and this is an application to employment. And sure, we're supposed to be honest. We're supposed to be good workers. Who would say that part of the Christian life is to be rebellious and to steal from your boss and to be argumentative and to not be trustworthy? But is that really the point that Paul's getting at? I mean, we might have a difficult boss. We might be in an unfair or unjust employment situation with unfair policies and and even unfair practices. But here the issue is slavery. It's bondage. It's where one's will is completely under the authority of another. That's not our employment. I think to interpret this text this way, by the way, full disclosure, that's the way I've preached it before. I think to interpret this text this way is to completely miss Paul's point. Here's your application this morning. The issue is obedience in dreadful circumstances. That's the issue. Obedience in circumstances that are dreadful. This is obedience in hard times. This is the power of the gospel in the hearts and wills of those who have every reason to be bitter, who have every reason to be resentful. Let me tell you, if I'm a slave on the island of Crete and I'm going to one of these new churches and I recognize that the whole tenor of what we now call the Old Testament is against the institution of slavery and I recognize that none of this is fair and I recognize that I'm an equal bearer of the image of God just like my master, I'm going to want to rebel. I'm going to want to say, hey, this is not fair. This is darkness. And what does Paul say? In that context, he says, submit to your masters. They have every reason to be bitter. These are at the bottom of the human hierarchy, but they still are called to honor Christ and to obey Him and to adorn Him. And I think to take this text and to roll it over into employment misses the point completely. It's not so much about employment. It's the fact that you and I will sometimes find ourselves in the most dreadful of circumstances, and will we still be willing to obey? That's the question. One commentator on Hebrews, excuse me, Titus says this, the very difficulty of a Christian slave's position would make such conduct a powerful recommendation of the gospel, proving to his slave master the power of the gospel. Now, even as I read those words, even as we look at this text, the objections that still rise up in our hearts and minds and our will, they make us uncomfortable. But let me challenge you to think deeply about this this morning. If the purpose of the gospel is our comfort and ease, this is nonsense. If God's primary agenda for you is for your life to be comfortable, this is nonsense. And I would say a whole bunch of the rest of the New Testament is nonsense. The question is this, is our saving God, as we'll see in a moment, He is the God of salvation, God our Savior, is our saving God Lord over every single circumstance? 
including your unhappy marriage, including your employment to someone who's a jerk, including the unfair way that you've seen your retirement be dissipated away with either fraud or a poor investment or inflation, including living, having to deal with people who lie about you or who betray you or who misrepresent you, those kind of dreadful circumstances, are you willing to obey and follow Jesus? And do you believe that our God, who saves us from our guilt and our sin, is Lord over that circumstance as well? The question is, how faithfully do we obey when we are truly powerless? How faithful are we when we're really vulnerable? And again, we have the story of Joseph, who was sold by his brothers, betrayed by his brothers, sold to slave traders, and ended up in the house of Potiphar. And it's clear if you read the text, he was diligent and faithful, and he rose to the level of the steward over all of Potiphar's house. And then he was sexually seduced by Potiphar's wife. And what did he do? He didn't yield. He was faithful in that. And where did he end up? Falsely accused and in prison. And there he was faithful. And if you know the story, he was faithful. He befriended the baker and the butler of Pharaoh and interpreted dreams for them. But what happened? He was forgotten and left in prison. Joseph was faithful Regardless of his, his circumstances, he knew that his God was Lord of all things, including his darkest circumstances, and he was faithful. What I'm suggesting this morning is that this challenging call to slaves in unfair bondage and also to us in dreadful places, it has a rationale, it's got a reason. In fact, it's got a glorious purpose There's a calling here, and Paul spells it out. And the mission that we're on, the calling that we're on, has to do with God and our display of His glorious truth. God and our display in our lives of His glorious truth. That's our mission. Our mission is to put God on display, to display how glorious He is, to make Him look beautiful. Look at the end of verse 10. After this challenging assignment and responsibility given to slaves in dreadful circumstances, Paul says the reason for this is so that in everything they, that is slaves, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In Greek, adorn comes from the same word from which we get the idea of cosmos. It's the orderly arrangement, and therefore it has to do with the display. By the way, I wonder if it doesn't have to do with order as opposed to disorder. Over the last few weeks when we've looked at gender and all of those issues, there's just nothing but disorder in the world. But as believers, we're to demonstrate, put on display the order of God's glorious doctrine of the truth about God. And ultimately, those in dreadful places like slaves in the first century, they are nevertheless to display God's beauty and to embellish His beauty. Listen, we can't make God more glorious, but we can put His glory on display. And that's the calling that we have. That's our mission. And if you wonder what a glorious doctrine it is, if you wonder how beautiful it really is, let me say the words again. And can you stop and just listen? The holy God of the universe is willing and eager 
to save you. Our God saves sinners. We use the term here often, rebels, because that's what we are. We want our own kingdom. We want our own throne. We want our own authority. And in that, we want our own comfort and our own ease. But we have a God who, though we have rebelled from the moment we first began to make choices, and that rebellion was rooted in the way we were born, though we rebel all through our lives, we have a God who is willing to save sinners like us. And that is glorious. And that is beautiful. And what Paul says, even for people on the lowest rungs of society who find themselves in dreadful circumstances, there's an opportunity there to make that God look glorious. And He is a God who saves. By the way, when Israel was brought out of bondage, they called Him the God of deliverance, the God of salvation. Look at it in the text. Look in Titus. Look with me. You have Jesus and God both called Savior here. Uh, Look with me in chapter 1. Look at verse 3. At the proper time, uh, God manifested in His Word through the preaching that which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, who is called Savior in verse 3, and Christ Jesus our Savior. You find the same thing in chapter 2. Look in verse 10. We've already read it today. This is the doctrine of God our Savior, but look down in verse 13, and our God and Savior is Jesus Christ at the end of verse 13. I could show you the same thing in chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. It's the same duo. God is our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. There's a mystery of the Trinity there, but don't miss the point. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they save us. He saves us. He saves sinners. And this is our mission. Can I say it this way? This is why we're here. It informs our purpose. It informs our identity. It informs the meaning of our lives. The basic question we have to return to over and over again, whether we live in first century Crete or whether we live in 21st century California, it's the same issue. Is this all about our comfort and our desires or is it all about displaying the glory of God? Excuse me. Now, before I close, I have to talk about the conundrum that I find in our day and time right now. The message is this when we live faithfully, we display the glory of God in truth, in doctrine, and that puts God's beauty on display. But what happens when we accurately reflect the beauty and the glory of God? And the very doctrine of God that we reflect is offensive to the culture. I dare say the average person who hears a message on slavery and says that in the first century, God told slaves to be submissive to their masters, that's not a beautiful thing to them. They consider that an offensive thing. And we've looked at the offensive positions that we have to take about sexuality and gender, about sexual sin about what marriage really is. And those kinds of things, when we accurately reflect them and talk about them, do you think the people on the, in the west side, do you think the people in Montecito, do you think the people who are raising their kids in Goleta, do you think they look at that and say, that's just beautiful and glorious? 
If you think that, I'd love to meet those people. We need to get them coming, right? Because the truth is, very often the doctrine of God in and of itself is offensive. It is called in the New Testament a stumbling block. So this is the conundrum that we are called to live in ways that trust the goodness of God and to live out our confidence in Him, but often that will be perceived by the people on the outside not as beautiful, but as something that is terrible or offensive. And let me just say very quickly, that's a whole sermon, by the way, but let me say very quickly just three things about that. The first is this. The issue is really consistency and faithfulness and not hypocrisy. One of the great tragedies is that too many churches have professed and too many church systems have professed faithfulness to God and then hidden up grievous abuse and sins. The issue is, are we consistent with what we believe and are we faithful in that even though what we believe might be offensive to our neighbors? The second issue is this. Even though they don't love and they don't accept and they don't consider attractive what we believe, when we live our lives in this way, we demonstrate our confidence in the beauty and the glory of God. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about Paul and Silas. You remember that story from Acts 16? They're falsely accused and they're made prisoners. They lose their freedom, so they're in bondage. So they're in dreadful circumstances. And in the middle of the night, remember what they do? They have a praise and worship service and they're singing praises to God. You see, that's incomprehensible to the world around us. But it shows people, even though they might not like what we believe, that, that we really believe it, that we really consider our God glorious. And that's in view here. And the last thing I'd say is that living together in the church with people who sometimes rub us the wrong way and people who have different backgrounds and sometimes different opinions and yet we still love one another. We experience human flourishing in the church. This also, even though people might look at our church and say, I don't understand how those people believe what they believe, but look how they, what? Love each other. Look how they love each other. This is what it means to put God's beauty on display, to adorn to make glorious, to embellish God's glory, God's beauty. In very many ways, it's always been this way. I mean, go back and read chapter 1. Crete was a mess. And look around, California's a mess, right? But we're responsible for not their responses. We're responsible for our own faithfulness. And this really has power when we are in dreadful circumstances. So, let me push toward a conclusion. Whether we're slaves in Rome, or whether we work for a jerk, or whether we've lost our retirement, or whether we have a broken, unhappy marriage, or whether we have neighbors that we can't get along with, or whether we're persecuted as the future might hold for holding the things we believe, we are called to faithfulness and obedience in dark circumstances. And when we fulfill that role, we put on display the beauty of the God who saves sinners, who saves rebels. I think when I worked on this sermon, and I suppose when I just said those words, 
for a whole lot of us, our response is, it's just hard. This is hard. And I think of the baseball movie, you know, the girls' baseball movie, where the coach says, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. It's the hard that makes it great. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. Like Joseph, who was faithful in the pit of the dungeon and in the pinnacle of his political power, he was faithful regardless. This is your takeaway today. Our calling is to make our God look good. This is our call. This is what God wants out of you this week. He wants you in your interactions at home, in the privacy of your home. He wants you in your interaction with your neighbors, people at work. He wants us as a church in our interaction with our neighbors here on the west side. He wants us to make God look good because He is good. He is glorious. We can't make Him any more glorious, but we are called, especially in difficult, dark circumstances, we are called to put His glory and His beauty on display. That was the responsibility of slaves in Crete, and that's the responsibility of believers here in California. And thank God we're not in slavery, but we still live in darkness. And God wants us this week to make Him look good for the way we live our lives. Let's pray together. Father, none of these things are easy. The great evil of slavery is a stain upon our nation. And yet there is a sense in which we yield our will, like slaves, to you, a loving and perfect master. Help us recognize that in the early church, it was not easy for people in desperate circumstances to manifest this kind of faithfulness, and it's not easy for some of us today. But you haven't called us to do what's easy. You've called us to do what's right. You've called us to be faithful in the midst of unfaithfulness. So, Father, equip us, challenge us, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice who right now is in dreadful circumstances. Maybe they are there because of foolish choices they have made. Maybe they are there because of the brokenness of this creation. Maybe they are there because of the harshness and the evil of other people in their lives. But Father, wherever they are, in whatever way they can, I pray that you would give them the wisdom and the strength and the confidence to obey you and to show faithfulness in dreadful times. Because, Father, when we do this, what we're doing in our lives is we're showing how glorious you are, that you are a God who saves rebels like us. Do this work for your glory. And we know that when you do the work for your glory, it ends up being for our good, and we thank you for that. And we pray these things in the glorious name of the one who is our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.